you make your way in, let me draw your attention to two things by way of announcement. This afternoon at 5 o'clock, we're going to meet here in the sanctuary. Here's the idea for tonight, is that we're going to meet together. I'm going to be sharing some things. I'll try to be brief, uh, but you know me, so I'll, I'll try to be brief. But I want to just share a couple of things with you um, that we will then turn into prayer together as we think about the coming weeks and months uh, of the life of faith family and where we're going and what we're doing and, and trying to discern, God, what do you want from us? God, what do you want us doing? We want to pray about those things together. And so we're going to begin that process tonight at 5. I hope you're able to be here again right here in the sanctuary, 5 o'clock. And then next Sunday at 4 o'clock, so tonight at 5 Next Sunday at 4, we're going to have a meeting for those who would be interested in just gathering some more information about a summer mission trip to Guatemala City, Guatemala, to serve with Hope for Tomorrow Children's Home. Um, And so next week, we'll get you some information about that. You're not having to commit to anything next week. It's just simply to show up, get the information. Um, We'll make you sign in blood later, all right, but not not next Sunday. So just come 4 o'clock. We're going to plan to meet uh, just right back here in the coffee shop area. If for some reason there's a lot more people than than we can hold back there, we'll just slide right into the sanctuary. So that's the plan for next Sunday at 4. If you have any questions about that, let me know. All right. So good to see you. I love you. So thankful for you. Let me pray for us, and we'll begin our time of worship together this morning. Father, as we come on this Lord's Day, God, we are so thankful that we God, we don't have to ask you to be here. We don't have to dial up the right combination, God, so that you would come and meet with us. Father, by your spirit in us, God, you you are here. You are present. And so, God, that means that we are meeting with you today. We're not just a bunch of people gathered in a room, singing some songs, doing some spiritual things. God, we are meeting and communing with you. So, oh God, let that give shape to how we think, and to how we sing, Father, to how we pray, to how we approach your word this morning. God, we thank you that you give us the regular rhythm of this day. God, we thank you for all the means of grace that come to us in the gathering on this day. And so, Father, as the redeemed of the Lord Jesus Christ, God, it is our pleasure, it is our delight to sing, God, to declare your excellencies in song. God, thank you for for Alex. God, thank you for those on, on stage now, God, who will be a part of leading us. God, just to behold your greatness and your glory, God, may we respond with all the, uh, the worship, oh God, that you are due. We love you. We thank you and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Church family, let's stand together as we lift our voices in song this morning. Oh, 
Blessed be your name. 
Blessed be your glorious name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. You give and you take away. You give and you take away. take God's word and join me in Hebrews chapter 1 for our scripture reading this morning. If you are able to stand with us, Hebrews chapter 1, as we hear from the, the word of God this morning, in this moment, not only are we hearing from the word of the Lord, but we are also declaring unto the Lord that we are gathered to hear from him, we are gathered to hear from his word and to prize and prioritize him. Above all things, Hebrews chapter 1 this morning, and as we hear from the word of the Lord, may God take this eternal truth and write it upon our hearts this Lord's day. Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, 
who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Church family, would you be seated? And as you do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer together this morning. Father, what you intend for us in this moment it is very simple. Your word makes it very plain. That God, what you would have for us in this moment is to behold your glory in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. Beginning in chapter 1 of Hebrews, throughout all of this epistle, God, over And over and over again, you are saying to us that Jesus is better. Better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priest of Israel. For in Christ do we find rest. In Christ do we find forgiveness of sin? God, you are beckoning us, your people collectively this morning to fix our eyes on Jesus. He is glorious. He is majestic. He is seated at your right hand because the work of redemption is done. He, therefore, God has been given the name that is above every other name. And in response to that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. God, all of Scripture is pointing us to behold the beauty of And the magnificence, the majesty, the glory, the authority, the power, and dominion of Christ. So God, help us this morning. The week behind us maybe has been long, worrisome. There may be the temptation to check out to think about the worries and the things of this coming week. 
God, what you want from us on this Lord's Day, oh God, is the best we can, oh God, to set those things aside. To focus our hearts, our minds, our eyes, and all that we are on the glorious magnificence of Christ. God, help us to lay aside any ideas grandeur. God, help us to lay aside any desires God, to be noticed and, and, and known. God, help us to have desires that just want to know Christ and make Him known. God, You will certainly use us for Your kingdom purposes. You will send us out into the world in the coming days to tell others about You and to live out the gospel. But God, on on this day and this moment, build us up, O God. Edify us. Equip us. God, we will be best edified and equipped when we behold Christ. The exact representation out of you. The one who spoke the world into existence, who holds all things together by the word of his power. Why, oh God, would we want to set our eyes on anything or anyone else? For it is to Christ and to Christ alone that you have said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So, God, may it be then in our hearts that we would be well pleased with Christ. He would be sufficient for us. We would know Him in that way. God, as we continue to sing, lift our voices. We have but one audience this morning, O God, and that is You. Through Christ, we are brought into the very throne room of heaven. Father, through Christ, you inhabit the praises of your people. And through Christ, we are safe. And that gives us cause for much rejoicing. So we ask then, we pray all these things. In Christ's great name, amen. Amen. Church family, let's stand as we continue to sing and to worship.
Christ is our solid rock. He is our firm foundation. Everything else, everything else goes away. Nothing else is a constant except Christ. He is who we find our worth in. So let's continue to worship as we sing. My worth is not in what I own.
My bad. So Zephaniah 3.17, we've been memorizing this verse this month. We are going to recite it again, and let's do it twice. So this is our last Sunday. Let's recite this out loud twice. I hope you've memorized it. If you've not, there's still time. It's not changing, and so it'll be here tomorrow. It'll be here in February. And so pick it up, memorize it, spend some time thinking about these words in Scripture. So if you would, recite it with me. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Zephaniah 3.17. Do it one more time. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. Zephaniah 3.17 This verse describes who our Lord is. Who God is. His character, his intentions, and his ways.
Church family, let me invite you to take God's word and join me in Matthew chapter 3 this morning, verses 11 to 17. Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 to 17, as we continue to make our way in these early chapters through Matthew's gospel together. Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 through 17 is our text this morning. Just a quick reminder of where we were last Sunday, for those of you that may not have been with us, maybe you have forgotten three truths last Sunday, three truths of those who are genuinely born again, verses 5 through 10, you recall, you can just let your eyes fall back on those verses from last week, that those who are born again, we see this evidence throughout John's ministry, that those who are born again have a desire to publicly confess their sins and to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verses 7 and 8, we saw that those who are genuinely born again, they have a demonstration of the ongoing fruit of repentance. We are reminded, church, that repentance is not just a one-time event, that it is an ongoing reality for those who are truly in Christ. And then lastly, we saw in verses 9 and 10 that those who are genuinely born again, they deny family heritage as a means of salvation. You recall John looking at the Pharisees and Sadducees and saying, and do not suppose for yourselves that you can say we are children of Abraham. That, that's why we're okay. That's why we're right with God. God. God can cause these stones to be made the children of Abraham. And not only do we deny family heritage as a means for being made right with God, but, but we deny anything else, right, church? We deny any other means to salvation except for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as John has been preparing the way for the coming of the Lord, we come to the text this morning in verses 11 through 17, and we see here together the very onset, the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. It is now time for Jesus to emerge onto the scene with his own message of repentance. He will come to his people in mercy and compassion. He will come and he will heal the sick and raise the dead. He will come and feed the hungry and free the captives. He will come and be tempted. He will come and He will suffer. He will come and He will die and He will be raised again. But before all of that, at the very outset of His ministry, there will first, maybe strangely to us, there will first be a baptism. At the beginning of his earthly ministry, as he leaves Galilee, makes his way down to the wilderness of Judea to meet John, we read in the text this morning that he comes to John to be baptized by him. And while I think there are natural questions that we'll seek to address in our study of the text this morning, what I want you to see, what I want you to grasp and not miss this morning is this point, that in the text before us, what we see is the clear, overt, outward display of the greatness, of the power, and of the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I don't want us to miss that reality in all that we see before us in the text. In coming to be baptized by John, Jesus is going to identify with those he came to save. And then in that process of baptism, God in clear ways is going to validate Jesus as his beloved son who indeed is the promised one. And in response to all of this, we're going to see together a noticeable humility from John the Baptist as he understands and as he submits himself to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. My hope and prayer for us, church family, is that we too, in coming face to face with the greatness of Christ, that we too, would bow before Him, that we would submit to Him, that we would yield to Him in humble thankfulness for who He is and what He has done. Look at the text with me, starting in Matthew 3, verse 11. John is still speaking here, addressing those Pharisees and Sadducees, the crowd that is there before Him. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his weed into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, and behold, A voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Everything about this text is pointing to the greatness, the majesty of Christ. So what I want to do in the text is I want us to help us, I want to help us to see Christ's greatness and the four evidences in this text that help us to see the greatness of Christ. So four evidences of Christ's greatness here in the text. The first one in verse 11 is that of his baptism. And what I mean by that is the baptism with which Christ will baptize. So the evidence of Christ's greatness is that of his baptism. Again, look in verse 11. John is still speaking. As for me, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not unfit. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so you see what John is doing in verse 11. John is drawing a comparison making distinctions between his baptism in the Jordan River and the baptism with which Jesus will baptize you. And John, in reflecting on his baptism, says what? I baptize you with water for repentance. Now, just a reminder for us, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks in Matthew chapter 3, there's nothing 
that can save us from sin except faith in Jesus Christ as evidenced by a repentance of sin. So then, when in verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, he does not mean, he does not mean that baptism brings about repentance or that baptism somehow saves. John is not contradicting himself. John is not contradicting any other scripture. We recall that baptism is an outward display. It is an outward sign of an inward repentance and faith. So what John is saying to us in verse 11 is this, because or for you have repented, I baptize you. You have come in confession. You have come in repentance. So I baptize you as a public testimony of that inward reality. And then you almost get the sense of a however in the middle of verse 11. He who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I am unfit to remove his sandals. John, now pointing to and referencing Christ, establishes what about Jesus? That he's mightier than I am, John says. He's greater than I am. He has more power, more authority than I do. John understands about himself that he is not the awaited one Jesus is. John is not the Savior. Jesus is. John is not the King of creation. Jesus is. And as John prepares the way of the Lord, how does he do that? He does that by humbling himself and proclaiming the power and the might of whom? Of King Jesus. There is a very real sense where John is doing everything he can to get himself out of the way so that Christ may come front and center and that his glory, his power, the truth from his mouth, his life, that that would be the greatest reality before the people. John even goes so far as to state what in verse 11? I am unfit. I am not even worthy to remove his sandals. And what John envisions here is that task of servitude that is often given to the lowest of the low of the servants. Stinky feet, dirty. John says, I'm not even, I am unfit. I'm not fit to even... Get down at his feet and remove, put my hands on him and remove his sandals. And here's my fear, church, is that in our day, even in gatherings such as this one, that there are far too many who strut about in their churches and on the platforms that they have made for themselves, seeking to draw all eyes to them, to me. When everything that John is doing as the forerunner of Christ is saying, don't look at me. Take your eyes off of me and look to Jesus. You you recall uh, in, in, in John's Gospel when Jesus comes 
to be baptized, John will say what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not the point, John says. He is. Don't look at me. Behold Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. In John chapter 3 and verse 30, John's ministry is, is, is wrapping up. John will soon be arrested and beheaded. And in John chapter 3 and verse 30, you recall, John said this about his ministry and his life as compared with that of Christ. He must increase, but I must what? I must decrease. Christ must be great. Christ must come front and center. Christ must be all in all, and I must get out of the way. My assumption would be that if John walked in the room this morning, that he would still be saying to us, he must increase. I must decrease. In fact, that is the very message of the Bible. That everything points to and flows from the Son Jesus Christ. So John's entire disposition is, I am going to bow low and get myself out of the way so that you can see Jesus. But saints, how many times, how many times do we say or do things so that people think well of us, so that they see us? How many times Maybe not with the words out of our mouths, but with our disposition and our heart attitudes. How many times do we call people to behold us instead of the glory of God in the face of Christ? And the call of the Scriptures over and over and over is that Jesus is greater. Jesus is more majestic. Jesus is better. He must then increase and I must decrease. At the end of verse 11, look at it again. John is going to give an evidence to the greatness of Christ and why he, John, has to get out of the way because he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is greater than I, I'm not, I'm not worthy. He's coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Jewish people for many, many, many centuries have been told of the coming and the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Maybe most notably in Joel chapter 2 verses 28 and 29, it will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female servants I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Now, John comes testifying about the baptism of Jesus, which is a baptism of the Holy Spirit and with fire. You then also recall that 50 days after Christ ascended back to heaven on the day of Pentecost, that the promised Holy Spirit comes. Comes in a very a unique display. 
of the fulfillment of Christ. You recall in Acts chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, that the apostles are gathered together in the room together, that there comes a sound like a violent rushing wind. There comes the appearance of tongues of fire. And while the Holy Spirit does not come upon people in this way any longer, that does not diminish what John is saying here, and it does not diminish the reality that every single believer, the very moment their conversion is filled, baptized by the Holy Spirit. In fact, church... God's Word tells us that it is God's Spirit that comes upon us to even give us the faith to believe. And so then, while the Holy Spirit may not come upon us in the sound of a mighty rushing wind or in the appearance of tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit nonetheless comes to God's people. Turn back to the prophet Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Just to work this into our hearts for just a moment more. John is saying what? Jesus is coming. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. So maybe there's been a lot of confusion about what is the baptism of the Spirit. Some have said that that's an event that happens after your conversion uh, some even in the um, Pentecostal movement will teach that the Holy Spirit comes upon you when you have the uh, or given the ability to do something like speak in tongues. Scripture speaks nothing of that, by the way. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, we get a real sense of what this baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And we get a real sense of what it is doing in us. Uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is when God, by a gift of His grace, sends His Spirit into your heart, awakening your dead soul, giving you passions for that which you did not previously have, and a change of your heart, your mind, and your will, so that you then call out in faith in Christ and repentance of sin. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, and that's what it does. And it's only Christ who can affect this in us. John says he's going to come with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He also says there at the end of verse 11 of fire. That imagery pointing to a fire that would purify, that would burn away the impurities from our lives. That is the sanctifying, cleansing work of Christ and His shed blood and the work of His Spirit in us. So John's whole point then is this, my baptism cannot save you. But he who is coming, who is mightier than I am, his baptism, oh, his baptism will save. 
It is effectual. It will bring about the salvation of his people. It will save you because it is the baptism of God's spirit that will make you alive and because it is is a baptism of fire that will burn away and cleanse from all sins. That's why Jesus is greater. Secondly, secondly, second evidence of Christ's greatness is that of his judgment in verse 12. That's his judgment. Pay attention as we read verse 12 again. I think you'll notice something very unique here. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Seven times under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew seven times uses third-person pronouns to point you to whom? Christ. Seven times over. He, His, He, and His. What is John making clear here in verse 12? That Jesus is the great and mighty judge who will come and judge all peoples of the world because all peoples of the world belong to him. He will come again and bring his people to himself, but he will also come again to judge the wicked in an unquenchable fire. And look in verse 12, his winnowing fork, it is in his hand. It's there. John is pointing to a reality that in a sense, while not in its most completed form yet, judgment has come. The cornerstone has been laid. And you will build your life on him or you will be crushed by him. His winnowing fork is in his hands. At the end of the harvest season, the grain would be brought to the threshing floor, an, an area that it would be of, of stone or maybe just hard packed ground. And the, 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 the grain, the, the wheat would be laid there upon the threshing floor and the farmer would take the winnowing fork and would take a, get, a, get a scoop of that and, and, and throw it into the air. And those strong winds coming off the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea, they would, they would essentially do the process of Separating the wheat from the chaff. The, the grain, the fruit, from, from what is just nothing. Just chaff. It's just no fruit there. And that process continues over and over and over again until what is laid here is the grain. And then what is piled up over here is the chaff. The just nothing And did you notice the language here about Christ and his winnowing fork? There's a judgment that is coming. To some degree, has already begun. The threshing fork, the winnowing fork is in his hand. He will, what does it say in verse 12? He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. Nobody in all of history In all creation, nobody escapes the threshing floor. He will thoroughly clear it. He leaves nothing unnoticed. Nothing goes 
thresh, no one escapes the coming judgment and separation. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees all things. He knows all people. And He will come. And there will be a separation. The wheat, verse 11, will be gathered where? It will be gathered into His barn. You get how this works. The wheat is threshed. And it's however the process goes. I don't have a clue. They bind it up. They store it. They put it in a barn for safekeeping and using. Jesus will come again. A separation will be made. A distinction will be made. Do not think that because our current cultural moment says no distinctions, don't think that a distinction is not coming, beloved. It's coming. It's coming sooner than we think. The wheat, in verse 11, are those who have come to faith in Jesus. They've repented of their sins. John chapter 14 and verse 3 tells us that Jesus will receive them to Himself so that where, they, where He is, they may also be. But in verse 11, what? The chaff will be burned with an unquenchable fire. Jesus, the great and mighty judge, will execute a judgment upon the chaff. The chaff are all those that have not come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have not evidenced faith through repentance. And they are cast into an unquenchable fire. This fire is eternal. It cannot be diminished in any way. It most certainly cannot be extinguished. And that is because it is wrapped up in the character of an eternal, holy, righteous, just God. Because God Himself is eternal, the wheat will be eternally under His grace and His mercy, but the chaff will eternally know His unquenchable wrath. The very last verse of Isaiah, Isaiah 66 and verse 24, Then they shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against Me. For their worms shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched. There are some among us, maybe even in this room, I don't know, but there are some who think that because a separation is not yet being made, a separation is not coming. There are some that you work with, that you go to school with, that you gather in family gatherings with, who think that because they are seemingly getting away with their sin, that a separation and a distinction is just not going to be made. He doesn't see. He doesn't know. Well, I turn just a few pages over to Matthew 13. And let me just say, if you're in the room this morning and you're toying with that idea, would you just pause for a moment and hear the word of the Lord? Matthew 13, look down to verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat chaff and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. 
The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barns. Friend, a a separation is coming. And it all hinges upon what do you do with Jesus? Do you know him today? Is he your salvation? Are you trusting and relying on Him and His shed blood alone to save you? If you are not, if you're trusting in something else, you currently stand in the field, but you are not the wheat. You are the chaff that one day will be separated from the people of God and punished in an eternal unquenchable fire. But hear the call of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come to Christ today. Come to Jesus now. Lean your whole hope for eternity upon Him and be saved by Him. Christ is great and evidenced by His coming judgment. Thirdly, His righteousness in verses 13 to 15, evidence of God's or of Christ's greatness is that of his righteousness. Verses 13 to 15. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him, but John tried to prevent him. So Jesus leaves these northern regions of Galilee where he has grown up in the little town of Nazareth. He makes his way south to the region of Judea, goes out to the wilderness where John is. John, you need to baptize me. And John, in verse 14, tries to prevent him. In the Greek, that's in the imperfect tense, which means that John is is continually saying, hey, no, 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 no. No, Jesus, I'm I'm not going to do that. doesn't matter how many times you ask me. I'm not doing this. I have need to be baptized by you, but, but you're coming to me. Jesus, this doesn't make any sense. You've got this all wrong. Switch this around, Jesus. No. And Jesus says in verse 15, permit it at this time, John. No, John, baptize me. Baptize me, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. There's a lot of questions, I think, that arise at this moment. Maybe the biggest one is, why is Jesus being baptized? If everything that we know, or, or, or taking everything that we know about baptism, what it is, what it isn't, what it does, what it doesn't do, why is Jesus being baptized? If baptism symbolizes a new life that is turned from sin, then why is Jesus, who is sinless, why is he being baptized? What's the point with this? Jesus answers that question in verse 15. Permit it at this time for. John, do it. Let me, let me be baptized. You baptize me because... In so doing, we fulfill all righteousness. We complete, we accomplish, we perform fully all righteousness. This right living according to God's holy will. So here's what all this means. Because 
Jesus comes as our great high priest who comes as our representative before God, Jesus, like the high priest of old, must be able to fully identify with his people in every single way. Because Jesus will call his people to repentance and call them to baptism as an outward display of that repentance, Jesus, in this moment, will fully identify with his people in baptism, even though there are no sins for which he needs to repent of. In baptism, Jesus does that which he calls his people to do, thus fulfilling all righteousness. Identification with his people is what he must do if he is going to be our great high priest. And if Jesus is not baptized, it would in fact be an act of unrighteousness. One faithful pastor has said this, that he who was to take the sinner's place came to be baptized of John that he might thereby be identified with sinners for whom he was to lay down his life. And so he comes to fulfill all righteousness. And church, I would just remind you of this, that if Christ does not fulfill all righteousness, if he does not perfectly do the will of God in every single aspect of the law, in every single relational aspect with others, if Jesus does not fulfill all righteousness, then you and I cannot then be covered in his righteousness. And if we be not covered in his righteousness, then we have no ability to stand before a holy God. So it is not insignificant that Jesus comes and says, no, John, baptize me, brother, because we've got to fulfill all righteousness in this way. Because as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that what? We might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ is great. His greatness is evidenced by the fulfilling of all righteousness. Friend, if you've got a thousand lives to live, you'd never be able to fulfill all righteousness. We are wholly dependent on an alien, external righteousness with which we must be covered if we would stand in the presence of holy God. And then lastly, last evidence of Christ's greatness is His testimony. His testimony. What I mean by that is the testimony given about Him here in verses 16 and 17. Look at that with me. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were open. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here, at the outset of Jesus' ministry, What God so clearly intends in verses 16 and 17 is that everyone knows who Jesus is 
And so then two unique things happen in verses 16 and 17 that testify about Jesus' greatness. Both of them giving a testimony of Christ. The first, there in verse 16, the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove. Now, whether this is a literal dove or not, we we do not know. The Scripture says that the Spirit came like or as a dove. The greater point here being what this testifies about Jesus. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, as all Scripture does, finds its greatest fulfillment in Christ. And so this moment then, when the Spirit of God comes in this unique way, serves to give evidence that the one prophesied about through the prophet Isaiah, so many others, this is the one. Don't miss this. Don't look to something or someone else. He is the one. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So that no one would mistake who Jesus is, what he came to do. The Spirit of God comes upon him, marks him out as the promised one who would bring the gospel of good news. And then secondly, in verse 17, in a unique way, the voice from the heavens says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God the Father speaks. His voice opens the heavens and it declares about Jesus, this is my beloved Son. I am well pleased in Him. He is the exact representation, Hebrews 1, who I am because that is the very Son of God. I am pleased in him. And by implication, it is as though God says, you must be as well. Would you notice in verses 16 and 17 that all three persons of the Godhead are present in this moment? God the Father, his voice from heaven. God the Son being baptized. God the Spirit resting upon Christ as the anointed one of God. All three persons of the Godhead giving testimony that through Jesus, God's very Son, God will save His people from their sins. They collectively in this moment give testimony that it is Jesus alone who saves. That it is Jesus alone, Isaiah 61, who binds up the brokenhearted. It is this one who frees the captives. It is Christ who gives comfort. It is Jesus who makes the weary ones 
oaks of righteousness. It is though the Trinitarian testimony is declaring, look to Jesus. Look to Him all the ends of the earth and be saved in Him. Do not neglect Him. Let me just end here. You hear me quote J.C. Ryle a lot. You should own his expository thoughts on the Gospels. So go home this afternoon, buy that, all right? Start reading that. J.C. Ryle says this, Surely we may regard this as a public announcement, that the work of Christ was the result of the eternal counsels of all the three. It was the whole Trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. It is the whole Trinity again which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. To do it in Christ. What do I I want for us, church? I want us to behold the greatness of Christ. That's what I want us to see. How will you grow In your Christian life, you will do it by beholding Christ. How will God grow our church spiritually, numerically, to the ends of the earth? In Christ. I want you to behold the greatness of Christ through his baptism, his judgment, his righteousness, and the testimony about him. And then, in your daily life, live in such a way that Christ, not self Not anything or anybody else, but Christ is the greatest treasure and wellspring of your soul. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, the beauty of Your word is that it has been sown. God, take what is not helpful. God, strike it from memory. God, so that only what remains is the pure seed of your word that grows a fruit of righteousness in us. So God, we trust that when we say our final amen and leave this building and the lights go out, God, that your word is still doing its work in our heart. And God, one of the things that you intend is that what grows in our hearts and lives is a desire to see Christ for who he is and to make him known to the ends of the earth. Father, everything we have is because of Christ. Our ability to be here today, our confidence to stand before you in the coming judgment, oh God, is not in our righteousness. It is in Christ as we have sung this morning. Oh God, like John the Baptist, let the cry of our heart be, he must increase. I must decrease. God, help us to respond as we should, whether that be in repentance of sin and faith in Christ for salvation. God, whether that be through just confessing our pride before you that seeks to 
build ourselves up is greater even than Christ. God, just help us to respond. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you did not leave us in our sin. God, you have come to us. We ask and we pray all these things in Christ's great name. Amen. Church family, let's stand together as we...